few quick follow-up announcements first. I just want to encourage everybody as our Holy Week services are approaching, uh, one, to be aware of those, look at the program, and invite people to come to church with you. You would be surprised how many people don't come to church because no one ever invites them, and how many people would be willing to come to church if somebody invited them to come to church, to come to one of those services with you. And then second... Uh, if you are here and you don't have a place to eat uh, an Easter lunch or dinner, uh, our home is open to you. Uh, or if you just don't want to cook it for yourself, you're more than welcome to come as well. Uh, we will be hosting uh, that following our, our services on that day. If you have any questions about that, I will never have any of the details, but you could see my wife. She'll be able to give you all the information that you need. We'd love to open our home to you. You're welcome to come. Please just let us know uh, that you plan to be there, but we'd love for you to come and to eat with us and to just enjoy a day of rest after we celebrate the resurrection together. Now, another few Preliminary comments. Our passage today is not about slaves or slavery, at least not in the way that Americans think of it. It is not about chattel slavery, which systematically enslaved men, women, and children solely on the basis of the color of their skin. But that does not mean that the slavery and servitude that our text has in view is not horrible. It is true when many people highlight that first century slaves could often be well-educated and in some times, in some instances, earn their freedom. But no matter how much education they had, they were still susceptible to being raped, sold, or beaten without any decision of their own. And very few people during the first century were actually given the opportunity to earn their freedom. So it's not about American slavery, and it is wrong for us to say, well, first century slavery was different, it was better. Our passage today is not about the horrors of American slavery, and Peter's words did not then and do not now condone things like abuse, oppression, coercion, or manipulation. I want to continue to say that because it seems to me that the text alone is offensive when we simply just read it, and it says, be subjugated, submit yourselves, be a person of submission. It is always wrong for there to be abuse, manipulation, coercion, or oppression. And if today you find yourself in a situation where that describes you, you are in a good place. We would love to help you. Please come speak with me or one of the other elders. We would love to meet with you and figure out how we might be able to serve you. And perhaps you do not feel comfortable speaking to one of the men who serve as elders at our church. We have female deaconesses. If you don't know who they are, you could simply just go to the Connection Center and ask somebody to point you in the direction of one of our female deaconesses. They would love to sit down with you and to hear what's going on in your life and find out how they might be able to help you. Peter was writing to Christians in the situation that they were in as servants, as household slaves, as some of your Bibles say, and expected them to be among the people of God in church when this letter was read. That alone should be astonishing to us. Peter expected people who were servants or slaves to be in the congregation hearing this letter read so that they might be both encouraged and helped. So he addresses them and not their masters, 
just like he addressed citizens and not governing authorities last week in our text. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to 1 Peter. Our time together will be greatly helped by you following along in a copy of God's Word. If you do not have a copy here with you, you can just simply reach underneath the seat in front of you, pull out one of those Bibles. We'd love for you to be able to read along with us, keep it open the whole time. You will find the sermon much more understandable and enjoyable by following along. And if you don't have a copy you can take home with you, please take that one home with you. Consider that our gift to you today. I'm going to begin reading in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Peter writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as of Jesus Christ himself for here speaking to us today. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governing authorities as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Submit as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you, suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would help us now as we turn our attention to your word. We know that your word is truth. It is a light unto our feet, and it is a lamp unto our path. And we pray, Father, that you would help us as we give our attention to it, that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would write these eternal truths on our hearts, and Lord, that you might teach us the way of the cross, the way of submission, as we look to the one who suffered unjustly for us and for our salvation. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus, the risen Christ. Amen. Several years ago, while I was in India, I found myself sharing the gospel with Hindu people in New Delhi who, to my surprise, willingly accepted the offer of the gospel. It didn't take much in a conversation to convince them 
that they needed to agree with what I was saying. But it didn't seem to make much of a difference. As it was for Piscine in the life of Pi, Christianity was merely a belief system that they could add on to their present lives without any significant change. Life remained pretty much the same after they professed to believe in Jesus. They were able to easily and simply say, I can believe that, and added it on to what they were already committed to without making any adjustments whatsoever. For them, Christianity was just another religion, something that they could simply add on to their lives. But real Christianity, biblical Christianity, as this passage teaches us, makes a difference in how we live our daily lives. Peter wants us to see that all of the teaching of the gospel in chapter 1 and in chapter 2 lead us to points where our daily lives are different because of the gospel, which is why, once again, we find the apostle reinforcing the idea from chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, that the good works of Christians are intended for mission, as he now teaches us that God has called Christians to endure unjust suffering without retaliation. Three points will frame our study of this text this morning. The submission of servants, the example of Christ, the achievement of the cross. Notice first the submission of servants. Look with me again in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Peter's exhortation is addressed, verse 18, to servants. But servants functions as an example for all Christians. So Peter's teaching here applies to all believers, whether they are rich or poor, whether they are young or old, whether they are male or female, whether they are slave or free. All of these elect exiles in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia need to hear this word, just like everybody in this room needs to hear this word. And Peter tells us and all of these Christians, again, that the fundamental inclination of the believer should be to follow, or verse 18, be subject to authority. Servants, be subject to your masters. As Peter begins to focus on the godly response of believers to unjust treatment, he wants them to see that just as citizens are to submit to governing authorities, so also servants are to submit to their masters. They are to voluntarily yield to the authority of another because like Paul before him, he's not calling for Christians to be social revolutionaries because his concern was not overhauling all of the social structures of the day to transform the culture. We see something of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 21. Paul writes, Only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all of the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. 
Were you a bond servant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Peter is speaking to believers in the minority. There was no hope of changing everything around them. So his concern is how they are to live godly lives in the present, not how that they might change everything around them. Instead, verse 18, Peter tells these servants how their submission is to be carried out, verse 18, with all respect. The phrase seems to suggest a proper attitude toward the master is what's in view. Almost as if Peter is saying, you need to be respectful to the person who is above you. But that misses the mark of what Peter is trying to convey to his readers. Though you should most certainly be submissive and respectful to your masters and employers and all those who are in authority over you, whether they be governors or grandparents, the text actually says, with all fear. And in every instance in 1 Peter, fear is directed to God not to human beings. Look in chapter 1, verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear, fear toward God, throughout the time of your exile. Now flip over to chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your reverent fear for God and pure conduct. Slide down to chapter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and fear toward God. The reason that they are to submit is because they fear God. And because they fear God, they can submit, verse 18, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, once again, for any careful reader of 1 Peter, his words are simply astonishing and breathtaking. The apostle tells these chosen and precious people that God calls them to not only endure unjust treatment from uh, cruel people, but that they are to do it gladly, that they are to be a people, these chosen people who suffer unjust treatment, and that unjust treatment does not nullify the command to submit. Writing to Christians in the situation that they find themselves in, not the one that he wishes them to be in, Peter says believers cannot simply opt out of obeying their masters when they're wicked and cruel on the grounds that they are not good and gentle, which is exactly how we feel. He knows the proclivities of our heart. I don't have to obey right now because this is difficult for me. I don't have to obey right now because they're not being the type of people that they're supposed to be, and because they're not being the type of people they're supposed to be, I don't have to do what I need to do in this particular moment, which means that it's okay for me to act this way. And Peter says, no. 
just because they are cruel and wicked does not mean that you're able to opt out of the command to submit. You still have to be the type of people who yield voluntarily to the authorities that are over you. And he tells them why in verse 19. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Unjust suffering, the apostle tells us, finds favor with God. This is a gracious thing. It is commendable to God if they endure pain while suffering unfairly. It is rewarded by God when they persevere through undeserved sorrows because it comes on account of their faith in God. Did you see it in the text? It's just right in the middle of our verse. Peter says it is praiseworthy when the sufferers are, verse 19, mindful of God. Now, in verses 21 through 23, Peter tells us specifically they are mindful of the example of Christ. But in verse 19, he helps us see that their suffering is active, not passive. They are mindful of God as they, verse 19, endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. The being mindful of God actually helps them endure particularly when their masters are unreasonable, are cruel, or vicious, and overbearing, or tyrannical. The being mindful of God empowers a posture of submission and compliance, not defiance and rebellion, in the midst of the most demoralizing of situations and circumstances. Because the being mindful of God forces them to think of the Son of God who voluntarily yielded to the authority of another. Brothers and sisters, are you mindful of God? Mindful of God in your suffering. When you're suffering, are you conscious of the Son of God who suffered for all of us, who suffered for you according to his human nature? Most of the time, if we're honest, we're only mindful of ourselves and our circumstances. We're only mindful of the things that are immediately surrounding us, which is why we are constantly looking for things to justify the way that we are acting in the world and the way that we are living in the world. But Peter tells us in the midst of our suffering, rather than looking at ourselves, rather than looking at our immediate circumstances, rather than justifying all of the reasons why it would be totally plausible for us to be able to say, that's unfair, I don't have to do this, that we need to be mindful of God in the midst of being mindful of God that should actually empower us in the midst of those circumstances to do the most difficult of things. Be subject to your masters, not only to the good, not only those who treat you fairly and pay you rightly and are gentle in the way that they speak to you and that they give you adequate time off, but to those who are unjust and cruel and unrighteous, and ungodly, and that there's something about the way that we live in that moment that proclaims the gospel of God in the midst of the most difficult of circumstances in our lives. Those who suffer unjustly, verse 19, are rewarded by God. But just in case it's unclear and people don't get what Peter is saying, verse 20, Peter explains more fully what he means. For what credit is it if... When you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. 
Now, we might be astonished once again at what Peter is saying here. How is it possible for Peter to write to people like this? But Peter is simply applying the teaching that he heard directly from Jesus. Everybody flip over to Luke chapter 6. And in Luke chapter 6, what we'll see is that Peter is applying the same principles that he heard from the lips of the Savior. Luke 6, verse 32. Luke writes, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good, do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Now, if we're honest, that is not how we expect him to end that verse there. For he is kind to the grateful and the righteous. He is kind to those who submit and yield to those in authority. He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And he tells us our reward will be great when we lose everything around us. What was Jesus doing? The very same thing Peter was doing, pointing us to another world. And in so doing, he tells us in what circumstances believers will be rewarded and in which circumstances they will not be rewarded. And he says, those who are punished while doing wrong have no reason to congratulate themselves since they are simply receiving what they deserve and what they have earned. You have done wrong, so you have received wrong. Or to paraphrase it, if you are fired for being a jerk, you are not being persecuted. In such cases, you are simply receiving what you deserve for being a jerk. But on the other hand, those who endure suffering as a consequence of doing good will receive a reward from God. And notice what he says, God, verse 20, in whose sight they suffer well. Brothers and sisters, that is so encouraging to me, just to be reminded of the fact that God sees you in the midst of your suffering. We are so prone to think that God does not see it, that somehow he fell asleep on the job, that somehow he just kind of passed over our situation, and he doesn't see the pain and the anguish and the sorrow and the sadness and the fact that it is just simply and rightly unfair that it should not be this way. And that he doesn't hear us when we say, why am I receiving this when I have tried to do all of the right things? I've prayed, I've read, I've come to church, I've joined to church, I've served at church, I've given to church, I've done church things. And yet these people who could care less about the cross and mock everything that is good and right Get a raise, get more vacation, have wonderful time, a beautiful family, have all of the things that I wish that I had in this life, a money, a car, kids, a spouse. 
Peter reminds us that in the midst of that suffering, God sees. Brothers and sisters, God sees all of the pain. God sees all of the unjust treatment. And yet somehow Peter is able to still make an astonishing promise to us that if we are in those moments suffering faithfully in the midst of unjust treatment, that we are able to receive a reward and prepare to receive a reward that is beyond anything we are capable of fathoming in this life. And if some of you dreamers are like me in this room, you are capable of fathoming a lot. It is greater than anything that you are capable of conceiving of in this life. One of the good works intended for mission is patience while suffering unjustly. Believers, have you modeled it well? You know that answer. Have you modeled patience while suffering well? But perhaps you're here and you don't know the answer. Ask those closest to you. Have I modeled patience while suffering unfairly? And ask them to tell you the truth with no fear of consequence for their answer and respond in repentance accordingly. Peter says, if you submit, you will be rewarded by God when you endure unjust suffering without retaliation. The submission of servants. Notice second, the example of Christ. Look in verse 21. For to this you have been called. And just check note there. You have been called to suffering because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Peter tells these elect exiles that Christians are called to suffer. The words, verse 21, to this point back to their experience of suffering even when they do good deeds intended for mission, even when they suffer unjustly while doing what is right. And he tells them that suffering is not a detour which believers receive the inheritance to which they are called, Suffering is God's appointed means for receiving the inheritance. You don't suffer around your way to the reward. You suffer to the reward. It is the appointed path for every Christian, just like it was the appointed path for the Savior himself. But why are believers called to suffer in order to receive the inheritance? Simply because it was the appointed way for Jesus. And brothers and sisters, it is impossible to follow a crucified Christ without also enduring the cross. Verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. As Christ's disciples, believers are to suffer as he did. And how did he suffer? Peter will tell us. Enduring pain, enduring insult, enduring hardship, being lied about and transgressed against, being mistreated and mocked and scorned. Because of their relationship to the Savior, they are to suffer. Because, verse 21, he left them an example. At a young age in our home, one of the things that we do to teach our kids how to write the letters of the alphabet is actually write the letters of the alphabet 
and then have them trace them. So we'll write them all out, and then they get a different color pencil or pen or whatever it is, and then they trace over the top of those letters in order to learn how to write the alphabet correctly. That is the idea here. Jesus' suffering is an example in the sense that it models how we, verse 21, might follow in his steps, how we might learn how to suffer correctly, how we might endure unfair treatment righteously. So Peter highlights, verse 22, that Jesus committed no sin. Jesus, Peter tells us, did not merely resist sin while suffering. He never sinned. Now, I know that is something that Christians say a lot. But brothers and sisters, it is something that has to sink in. Jesus is truly human, and he never sinned. Not when he was a child, not when he was an adult. Not in the heat of passion in the moment where he became overrun by his emotions. Not when he was being sinned against. He was blameless in character, always. His integrity was unimpeached. He did no wrong ever in his life. And if Jesus, as the servant of the Lord, did not sin, despite suffering intensely and unrighteously as the righteous one, then, Peter tells us, believers should follow his example and refrain from anger and refrain from sinning specifically when they are enduring unjust treatment. In those moments, Peter tells us, in them, they are learning how not to retaliate by considering the example of Jesus, who, verse 22, never had deceit found in his mouth. Unlike all of the people who accused him and lied about him, Jesus never lied. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When someone said this about Jesus, he did not respond in kind. When he suffered, He did not threaten to try to back them away. Peter helps us see that Jesus' sinlessness was not as easily attained as we often think of it. He endured hostility. He endured hatred. He endured opposition from people that he did not know, from people that he did know, from people that he was very close with and he would have called friend, from people that saw him raised in Galilee, to people see him do mighty deeds on the way to Jerusalem, to people who saw him do acts of kindness to others. He endured great hostility. He was reviled. He was slandered. He was threatened. He was betrayed. He was mocked. He was scorned. He was beaten and mistreated and afflicted, and yet he did not retaliate. One of the great problems, I think, in the church today is it seems to me that a lot of people, Christians included, sometimes Christians especially, justify their anger and their critical spirit and their hostile disposition by the wrongs that have been done to them or the wrongs that they see in the world. There are lots of people for them to be able to point to, and they seem to be able to say, that person is unduly angry, and that person is bitter, and that person is critical, and that person is slanderous, and that leader is wrong, and that master is not doing it right, and as a result of that, and how they are so badly treating me and everybody else, it's okay for me to act the way that I'm acting. It seems that there's this automatic and deeply rooted sense that because we've been mistreated and let down and hurt, 
that the other person must be shut up and shut down and brought to justice by us and paid back and made sure that they knew and everyone else knows that that was wrong and it was not right and that we're going to make it right and we're going to do whatever we can to make that happen. Peter says, that is not the calling of the Christian. That that was not the calling of the Savior. That the Savior in the midst of that moment suffered silently, entrusting himself to God. Though he was mistreated, he did not mistreat. Jesus had every reason to respond righteously and say, this was wrong. And yet he opened not his mouth. Friends, Peter is helping us see that Jesus is an all-sufficient Savior. He knows exactly what it is like and has been like for you when the people who you loved most and trusted most and served with closely turned against you. The very people that you thought would be always for you and never against you wronged you and hurt you. And Peter says, when we are suffering under the authority of people who should be wielding that authority rightly or better, that in those moments, rather than fight for our rights, we have to entrust ourselves to a faithful Savior. Rather than retaliate, we are to look to the cross and the example of Jesus. Jesus knows exactly what it is like for you to experience the pain that you feel and the loneliness that you feel and the shame that you bear. He knows exactly what it's like to be misunderstood and to be misrepresented and to be mistreated. And some of you in this room have been greatly hurt by others who wielded their authority over you wrongly to hurt you and harm you, to oppress you and manipulate you and coerce you. Peter says, in the midst of all of that, Look to the example of Jesus, who, verse 23, committed himself to God when he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What gave Jesus the strength to refrain from threatening with retaliation and mistreatment? He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He knew that God would judge rightly on the last day. He knew that God would vindicate him and that God would punish his enemies if they refused to repent. I am so thankful that Peter does not tell these Christians that they can refrain from retaliation by simply being Stoics who learn how to put on a brave face because that is what we so wrongly think about Christianity, that what Jesus wants us to do is simply grin and bear it, that he simply wants us to try harder and endure it and not talk about it. In fact, he says the opposite. I'm so thankful that he tells them and us that we can actually triumph over evil in the midst of devastating circumstances by reminding ourselves of God's vindication as Jesus reminded himself of God's vindication. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do and it will be made right. Jesus' silence revealed his confidence in God's vindication. Believers, Are you confident in God's vindication? God will judge your enemies. He will make all wrong things right. 
And Jesus, our Savior, functions as an example for his disciples, teaching us how to trust God, believing that he will ultimately reward us and punish our enemies. But that's not all that he tells us, is it? Peter tells us the godly life of believers may win unbelievers to faith as they do good deeds intended for missions. But he also tells us that Jesus' suffering and death alone atone for sins. The submission of servants, the example of Christ, knows third, the achievement of the cross. Verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Christ bore our sins, verse 24. Jesus' death is the means by which sins are forgiven. He took them upon himself, and he suffered not merely to serve as an example for us, He served as a substitute on the cross for us. Yes, he lived as an example for us, but he suffered in our place for us. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He endured the shame and the horror and the mistreatment of life, and he died in our place on the cross. His suffering, Peter tells us, was for our healing so that we might now live for righteousness and not for sin. Friends, the purpose of Christ's death is not merely to provide an example, but as Peter wants us to see here, it is to provide forgiveness and it is also to serve to empower his people to live righteous lives. Did you see what he says in the text? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? That we might die to sin and then do what? Live to righteousness. Living righteously becomes a reality by dying to sin. The way to learn how to live righteously is by focusing on the cross. Sin has been dealt with in the person of Christ. We are, Peter tells us, no longer wandering. In the past, we were wandering, wandering because of our sin, wandering far from God. But notice what he says for us. He tells us, but now... You have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We are found by the shepherd. But what Peter's referring to here is not the tenderness of Christ. He's referring to the authority of Christ. The shepherd is the overseer of our souls. The shepherd rules over the sheep. And he tells us with his authority that we are to submit. And with his authority that we are to repent and to believe. And he has called all people everywhere to do this. Perhaps you're here today and you hear us talking about submission and you hear us talking about Christ and you still have no idea what it is we are talking about. We are talking about what Christians call the basic message of the gospel, that Jesus Christ came into this world to live the life that we could not, to die the death that we deserved, to be raised to life so that we might be raised to life if we trust in him. And if you're here today and you have never trusted in the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are so glad that you've come and we would love to invite you now to repent of your sins, to turn away from them and to believe in Christ. Perhaps you're here today and you've heard that message so many times and no longer phases you. We invite you because of the sins that are in your life to 
once again afresh repent of your sins and trust in Christ. Peter is reminding believers of the gospel while he's simultaneously calling unbelievers to repent and to believe in this gospel. Unbeliever, if you're here today, we call you to repent. Jesus commands you to repent. And the elders of this church would love to speak with you about repentance and faith. I'll be standing at the tunnel after the service. There will be others who would be here to love to talk to you about the gospel. But believers, this message is also for us. Peter is telling these people not only to look to the example of Christ, but to focus on the sufferings of Christ, the one who died for them. And he wants them to see that those sufferings become the example as Jesus himself was their substitute. For Piscine in the life of Pi, Christianity was merely a belief system that he could add on to his present life with little change. Life remained pretty much the same. I wonder, brothers and sisters, has that been the case for you? Life has remained pretty much the same because of your walk, in your walk with Christ. That he has no authority to tell you to do the things that you don't want to do. He has no ability to command you to do the things that you find difficult to do. Are you like Piscine, able to simply say, I can believe that, and add the gospel onto your life, and live unchanged? Peter wants us to see that the gospel makes a difference in how we live our daily lives, and how we interact with the world, and notice how he does it and how subtly he has done it. He doesn't speak to the governing authorities who are being unjust. He speaks to the citizens. He doesn't speak to the masters who are being cruel and harsh. He speaks to the servants. And he tells these people who are most likely to be taken advantage of, these citizens and these servants, and as we'll see next week when we look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, these wives with unbelieving spouses, that in the midst of the most difficult circumstances that they could find themselves in, that it is possible for them to follow the way of the cross and to do what is difficult and to yield to the authority of another even when they do not wield that authority rightly or righteously or justly because the gospel makes a, different, a difference in how we live our lives. Has it made a difference in yours? Let's pray. Father, we pray and we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you would help us today to consider afresh the claims of the cross. And Lord, I pray for all the believers in this room, especially those who perhaps have suffered under the hands of those who are cruel and unjust, that you would help them now to find comfort in these words as they look to the example of our Lord Jesus, as we all consider afresh his sufferings for us and for our salvation. Father, but we also pray for those who are unbelievers here in this room, that today would be the day of salvation for them, that today they would look to the cross and that they would hear as they look to the cross the message of forgiveness for all who repent and believe. We pray, Father, that they would be astonished at the mercy of the Savior who suffered for us and for our salvation. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?